Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us for Tyranny Today. Ukraine, Russia, China, Taiwan, Iran, and beyond. Let's, uh, I see Thomas is here, so let's get him in here to join us. Hold on one sec here. Here we go. And uh, thank you again for being here, Thomas. You should be getting a pop-up to uh, let you come in and uh, be part of the show. Uh, obviously, one of the first things we talk about, although briefly, is the... Um, <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, we'll just touch on. Hey there, welcome. Hello. Hi. Uh, that's a very nice Christmas tree behind you. Yeah, and by the way, Hanukkah Sameach. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do you want to say anything about uh, President Zelensky on his way to Washington D.C. and what I think everyone would agree? Well, he's just passing over here. Yeah. Still in the way. Still on the way. Landing early, uh, early afternoon. Uh, I would I would compare this, judging from Putinist reaction to Pelosi's landing in Taiwan. Let's see how many pro-Putinists will uh, commit acts of self-harm as the Chinese did um, back in whenever it was June and July when she landed there. Um, great coup of PR, fantastic. Uh, but it's too early to really talk about it because we don't know how these conversations will go. We know he's going to meet. With uh, Biden and you know other top politicians, I think speaking to Congress, so you know big big thing. Plus, he's actually coming almost straight from Bakhmut. He was he was on the front line, apparently carrying the flag with the yeah. you know soldiers' signatures. That's that's an amazing. So we still know that he's the best uh, PR president since at least Winston Churchill. Um, Wait, better than Reagan? You give him better marks than Reagan? In terms of wartime. Uh, leaders, probably yes, because yeah, uh, Reagan was never really a wartime president, right? That's that's more Democrats who who make big wars, with the exception of George W. So so it's a it's a, you know it's a big it's a big uh, coup uh, for sure, and I'm looking forward to hear more about it. But it's a the um, it, it, it's happening at a key moment. I maybe you have seen Putin the other day, very despondent. Referring yeah. to difficult situation of the special operation in the East. Um, Why is this happening to me? Why am I being there? I'm, I'm just, just protecting my sight. Why those patriots, those patriots from Poland will be now in Ukraine. And that's really, you know, defensive system. It's against Russia, right? It's against our interests. We cannot really bomb them as well as we did. Having said that, I'm afraid, you know, the Iranian drones will still probably elude Patriots. Patriots are expensive systems. Finally, Ukraine gets them. They're more to um, defend against long-range missiles uh, from the Black Sea or Caspian. I think, judging from Putin's very big delegation in Minsk a couple of days ago, he went there with Lavrov and Shoigu and Peskov and everybody else. I think some of that discussion is about Belarus being coming a regular launching pad for shorter range missiles yeah. um, for, you know, at least to attack um, Kiev. Um, that would mean that Russia is running out of some of the long range uh, weaponry and whatever they're buying from Iran is going to be sort of mid-range, mid short range. So they need more Belarus to terrorize Kiev. Um, but it's, it's, it's amusing to see uh, a, a, a presidential plane from Bakhmut to Washington uh, almost straight well, well, uh, there, there was a there was a train. Yeah, I suppose there's a bit of a judicial for Pshemishla, you know, uh, 
My favorite city. Connection. Connection, yeah, on the way. <laughs> I have to be honest, I kind of thought, given the number of times I know Ilya Ponomarev has driven from Kiev to uh, to Poland to, to, instead of taking the train, I kind of thought we were going to see this shot of Ilya and Zelensky driving along. Ilya drives at a pretty good clip. I thought that, that might have Really? And then what? And then rolling from Gdansk? Well, that would be easier to do it for Odessa. Yeah. Um, I doubt it. Um, I do want to ask you, though, sort of in jest, but maybe not. Do you think at the end of this meeting today with Zelensky that Biden should extend a similar invitation to Putin? Come on over. Let's talk about it. Very good question. Um, I haven't seen any signals from Moscow right now that they're interested in negotiation. Uh, they, they do, to, to me, this all the talk of the winter uh, offensive and half of that partial mobilization already being induced, uh, ready for another launch. Uh, there may be some movement within Moscow that we don't know much about, um, but I don't really see uh, willingness to engage. Might there be geopolitical points to be gained by merely in make, offering the invitation? No, I mean, in front of you know, the, the Pope, you know, even the Pope could become a little more anti-Russian in the last couple of weeks, right? So I, I guess uh, I, I, I don't really see this happening. If anything, there are signals that Russia has not um, adopted to reality and is kind of dusting off some of those broader geostrategic objectives that it laid out back in, you know, late 2021 saying, you know, NATO should just move away from our area back behind Elba River, or the river at least, and, you know, leave us, leave these little buffer states for us. We'll, we'll just deal with that. And apparently there were just some additional addenda to that Lavrov's uh, ultimatum. Uh, these addenda were very unpalatable to Baltic countries and, 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 and Poland. Uh, constraining even military exercises in these countries. So something that was very far-reaching. It doesn't seem like Moscow has learned the lesson from from its military losses. It hasn't yet lost the peace. So I'm not sure this is the right moment to offer something, but who knows? Maybe something comes out from this meeting. I'm not that optimistic. Yeah. All right. So um, I'm sorry I wasn't here last week to join. We were sorry to, yes. But I will plug that I can tell you from personal experience if you go to the website for the show, which is beams.live slash tyranny, all the shows are archived. And I did go and watch the archived show, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, I did miss the presence of myself. It was a little weird pining for myself. as I It watched. felt very oh. empty, Greg. I don't know how we did. But but I, I, I you, you have told me that as a follow-up to that show, you wanted to share a story about your own experiences in this part of the world that could, I guess, give you some credentials on on your perspective on what's happening there and what might come to the Right. So it's very dubious as credentials, mostly probably um, would serve as, a, as an anecdote. But I did, didn't really explain how, in what am, am I speaking about uh, Saudi Arabia and the Arab Peninsula? Other than you and I actually traveled in our peninsula together, right? That that's that's a different story. Um, indeed, you know, I wasted my young years learning Chinese characters and thousands of them instead of doing something useful like learning Arab. 
So that's that's still kind of uh, you know maybe a, a plan for whatever is left of the future. Uh, but I do have something to share. Um, I spent many years working in the mining industry, and much of the mining that I dealt with uh, was in Africa. I'm saying was because basically this trail has been disrupted by COVID and other events. Mm. Going to West Africa, you're dealing with a lot of Muslim countries, and uh, these Muslim countries, since at least the Libyan war and the collapse of Gaddafi's regime, have been very deeply destabilized. So Gaddafi maintained sort of a Praetorian Guard, mayor of uh, members of that Praetorian Guard came from Mali and other countries of the Sahel in Western, Western Africa. Some of these countries, which I know fairly well, probably the worst places I've ever been to in terms of how tough life is in, say, Mauritania. Um, but the situation was progressively deteriorating, and I had to go to many of those places, uh, more than half a dozen of those different countries, to just do a due diligence on different mining projects. And there was one company, a Canadian company, uh, specifically in Burkina Faso, which uh, experimented with new types of explosives. So in mining, you do some geological work, you try to find where the ore is in the ground, and then you drill little holes, and then you put explosives, they're called anifol, it's ammonium nitrate fuel oil, and then bang, you know, you have the first moment in what's called communication. So there's this like, the the rock is split into, into smaller pieces, and then you throw it into a crusher, and then into a ball mill, and then it comes much, much smaller pieces that you can start using hydrometallurgy to extract metal from this, because these were metal mines, say gold mines, for example, not coal. The problem is that the security situation in these countries gradually deteriorated over years, and there were increased numbers of terrorist attacks in southern Algeria, in Niger, in Chad, in Burkina Faso, in Mali, in Mauritania, and so on. Um, and that increased, of course, the cost of going there because you have to look after your own security. I had worked in Colombia for many years, and I knew that the security of an operation is actually at three levels, the um, area security, the access security, and the personal security. Unfortunately, the way those terrorist acts functioned in West Africa had nothing to do with, say, Communist FARC in, in Colombia. So Communist FARC could kidnap people and keep them for 15 years to extract money, uh, like Ms. Betancourt, for example. Um, the West African jihadists, when they kidnapped so someone, from what we could read, and that happened in, in one of the main hotels in downtown Bamako, the capital of Mali, and uh, the seaside resort in, in Cote d'Ivoire, or southern part of Algeria, which was actually an oil uh, facility that was attacked. They just divide, here are the Muslims, please go to the left, and everybody else, please go to the right. <laughs> so the Muslims, the Pakistanis and others, you know, go home, and everybody else, bam, 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 we'll chop, chop, chop. Uh, and I didn't really fasten myself being banned or chopped. And so I, I read more about these events um, to just find out the details of this, and I found that, that one of the ways in which jihad is very excited, sort of divides the two subpopulations, was to test who's the Muslim and who's not the Muslim. 
And it's not quite as simple as someone, you know, wearing something. You're basically, as a Muslim, you know, at least Surah Al-Fatiha, which is the first Surah, the first set of verses in Quran. There's 114 of those, but most people, if you go to, I don't know, Kyrgyzstan, you know, former part of Soviet Union, at least they know Surah Al-Fatiha. It's like Mm -hmm. our father in, uh, for Christians, most people would, would know that in their own languages. Here it's just Arabic. Uh, so it doesn't matter that the Kyrgyz person doesn't understand Arabic, they would be able to recite that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, bingo, I found my life insurance. I'm going to now learn Surah Al-Fatiha. And so in the preparation to this trip, which was really about that Canadian company using different types of explosives from those ANFO explosives, uh, because the real problem in mining is that once you actually split the rock, let's say it's an open pit mine, so you're at the bottom of this big excavation, you split the rock and it just flies in different places. And so you have to then find where's the ore and where's the, the waste, right? Because you're not going to throw the waste into the plant because it's very expensive, very energy consuming and so on. So you have to find out. So this Canadian company uh, created a system with new kind of plastic, heavy plastic uh, bags that they put into those drill holes. And so when the rock was split, the explosives would project the colorful bells, say a green with R and the yellow with, with waste, into a direction when a bagger, you know, a digger will come with the, with the dipper and extract the R and throw on the R. So it was a very interesting sort of experimental project, simple on surface, not that straightforward if you look at the physics of these things, but this is where I was going. So did a lot of research on that too. And anyway. So back to my life insurance. So I started learning Surah Al-Fatiha thinking, well, that would protect me in case we're, we're kidnapped. And so, you know, I'm going there the first night, putting this online. There's a lot of sources online. Um, you know, my wife says, oh, this is, sounds really nice. You know, this sounds really nice. And after the first week, she's like, can we listen to something else maybe? <laughs> There's luckily enough different uh, different different pronunciations, different types of recitation. So I'm going like, Bismillahirrahman alrahim, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil alamin, Arrahman alrahim, Maliki almidin, Yakanahbudua Yakan astahim. Of course, I'm not going to go any further, but that, that was the, net, the, the, the sense of what I was doing. Sorry if I'm doing this in front of the Christmas tree. That's probably not going to save me. But uh, they, and so this is what I'm doing. Basically, for two weeks, I'm learning Quran online, and I'm learning about explosives online. I want to know when your Google is going on. Hello? Hello? <laughs> Well, since there will be no visit from FBI, it just tells you that we're not so safe in this country. You can do everything online. Uh, but that's as far as my Arabic actually goes. And of course, I forgot everything else, which I couldn't recite uh, today. Um, still probably useful. Um, uh, uh, the beautiful, uh, be- beautiful surah, and there's many more to, to learn. Uh, but uh, that, the fact that uh, I wasn't found out online, um, that makes me think of the poor Chinese Communist Party, which supposedly has this Orwellian system, knows everything about everybody on their online activity. And then in the wake of those Shanghai, step down, negotiating the demonstrations in Shanghai, police was found on the subway in Shanghai, 
physically grabbing people's phones and checking. Do you have any picture from the demonstration? So much for the Orwellian super system. Anyway, so that's uh, that's just my little justification why I feel at least somewhat um, qualified to speak about um, Arabic events, including those from Saudi Arabia. Um, we'll come back to Saudi Arabia a little bit later today. I noticed you didn't put the Christmas tree up until after last week's episode. Uh, that's true, indeed, yes. All right, so today you want to kind of do a recap from a very specific point of view of the year of 2022 as it relates to tyranny. Exactly, and I'm sure, you know, if you're, if you're online and you're watching different platforms and YouTube and so on, there's like millions of people doing this. And it's very easy these days to decide, oh, what's the event of 2022? Well, let me think. Did anything happen until February 24th? Or... And then let's choose the man of the year. Who could that be? Maybe a woman? Ah, maybe not. You know, that's kind of boring. So what I want to do instead is to, to kind of look at the, how geoeconomics uh, connects with geopolitics. Because this is the year that reminded us of the importance of um, geopolitics, like no other year before for, for decades. But we shouldn't forget about the connectivity between different countries, different regions. Um, that is not often just geopolitical, but um, it's, a, it's a result of knockoff effects on our economy and how we are all actually connected despite all those walls that are being erected. And in fact, some of these walls affect the flows too. So there's, there's a couple of issues. And strangely, I'm not going to start with the war. I'm going to start with something else. And the reason being, actually, yeah. yesterday there was an event uh, here on Wall Street, on Stone Street, which is not far away from Wall Street. Just walk William Street. <laughs> it connects the two. Uh, for a group of portfolio managers, of former portfolio managers, uh, some of us already quite aged, We've been doing this for, for, for myself for 20 years, but the club is longer. And everybody just comes up with ideas, you know, what happened 2022, what was going to happen 2023. We just project and guess and predict events mm -hmm. for next year. But it's a very Wallace-Troopish um, angle. So very, um, very strong uh, angle on what the macroeconomic picture is. Uh, so again, yesterday I was trying to connect this with the geostrategic events. Um, so let me just go for this and let me start still with the Fed. You may of course realize that the Fed has been increasing interest rates in response to inflation, which has a huge impact on various events around the world, much more than it's usually appreciated. The first and foremost, we believe and the Fed believes that they increase interest rates because inflation is high. For that to actually work, the inflation has to come from the demand side. And there are good reasons to believe that some of the fiscal injections during the COVID pandemic that we almost forgot, all of us except the Chinese, uh, that, that, that huge liquidity, $5 trillion here in the United States, that generated this inflation. And definitely this lubricant helped. Um, but it's not that easy. Actually, the feds, one of the feds, so the, the fed is not just one entity, there are several. Uh, elements of Federal Reserve infrastructure here in the U.S. So the Federal Reserve of San Francisco came up with an interesting chart a couple of months ago showing that more than half of that inflation is because of supply, because supply is not catching up. So it's not because of demand, but simply 
different supply dislocations, the lack of labor in this country, lack of energy in Europe, different, different drivers in different, different parts of the world. But if that's the case, if that's the case, and you refresh your macroeconomic knowledge from school, then increasing interest rate is not the solution. Because if there is not enough capacity to churn out sufficient number of tchotchkes for the market, you have to build new capacity. You have to expand it. For that, you need capital. And at higher, higher interest rates, that capital will be more expensive. So that capacity buildup will be slower. In other words, you will contribute to inflation by increasing interest rates. I know it's a, not a usual concept, but that, to a large extent, what happens in the post-pandemic inflationary, um, uh, inflationary uh, wave. Now, that, of course, means that markets suffer for longer. That reduces wealth everywhere, and wealth matters. Think about Ukraine. Ukraine needs, uh, today, U.S. is mentioning another one in whatever, $1.8 billion in, in, in aid for Ukraine. Uh, Europe is disbursing another 18 billion after squeezing a little bit Victor Orban's balls. That was pretty quick. Um, but that, that amount of money is possible only if there is a generation of significant growth, uh, for the, for the public budgets in Western Europe. If Western Europe and the United States are suddenly impoverished, so goes Ukraine. But more importantly, those higher interest rates have a huge impact on emerging markets. And that is unfortunate for us as we face the threat of tyrannies. Why is that? Short-term capital, when they see higher interest rates in the United States, is being sucked out from marginal markets or frontier markets or emerging markets. Short-term capital, which could feed itself well with high interest rates, much higher interest rates in Brazil or in India or in Argentina compared to the United States, um, now, that differential on a risk-adjusted basis is much less. So it kind of comes back to what we call safe havens, including the U.S. dollar space and the U.S. US treasuries, because there are, um, the, the, the premium that the emerging markets offer is much less to, to, in comparison to the U.S. dollar, which means that there's less capital. Let's take Latin America. There's less capital in Latin America. There is a very good um, theorem by Stolper and Samuelson, two economists in the 1940s, who showed how internal politics is affected by growing trade or declining trade. And when there is, uh, there are conditions of declining trade, which is the case right now. It's been a case for many years, but of course, geopolitics accelerates and wars accelerate this, this process as we are not all as interconnected as we used to be. Right. And costs, higher costs come with this. Then it's important to find out in a given economy what it's well endowed with and what's poorly endowed with. And if a Latin American economy, for example, like Brazil, is now poorly endowed with capital because it all runs away to the United States and other Western countries, and it's strongly endowed in land and labor, then the cleavage, which might be in other, on other occasions, urban or rural cleavage, becomes left, right cleavage. This, this, this division in the country becomes left, right. And that division, when the left wins, means that the left is very entrenched in its, in its interests um, against capital. 
And that puts most of Latin America in opposition, in addition to cultural historical issues, to the interests represented by the United States and the Western world, which explains largely why they vote alongside Russia, or at least abstain from voting against Russia and the UN. Why Lopez Obrador did not come to the meeting of the Americans in, in the president of Mexico in Los Angeles, snubbing uh, Biden, of course, and, and Kamala Harris. Why there's four different presidents in Latin America supporting an attempted coup d'etat in Peru last week, Paulo Costello. Those, they're, they're, these are easy, easy morsels for China's pro-Russian propaganda in Latin America when these countries are deprived of, of capital. Why? Because they spend areas of money to inject fiscal help during COVID, and they need access to capital. And right now, they have no access, most of these countries, to the debt markets, and they cannot refinance all debt. And so that increases instability around the world, and naturally, they, they look for other solutions. Oh, maybe the Chinese will help us. Of course, the Chinese won't help us. They have themselves in the situation when capital is running away real quickly. And the Chinese and Russian capital is trapped, right? It's 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 right. trapped within within a closed capital account since February twenty fifth, and so that division, left right division, is um, going to support further global inflation. Think about coming back to my area, mining. The, the most important copper mines in the world are in Latin America, including Chile and Peru. When this leftist movement accelerates, we're going to go back to nineteen sixties expropriations, quitting expropriations, nationalizations. And then of course, yeah, you can say, well, these countries will manage those mines and they will still export. Yeah, but the efficiencies will be so low that we know from history how quickly the production falls. And when the production of these commodities falls, then inflation is maintained for much longer. So that's number one is the Fed. Number two, of course, is the war. And what, what the war actually was when you know, especially from the from the perspective of the U.S., was that it closed the chapter of 19 years of mockery of the United States. Since Colin Powell appeared at the U.N. saying, hey, I see here, um, these are uh, weapons of mass destruction that Saddam Hussein has, and we have to go to war against Iraq. And ever since, everybody's like, America's... Uh, surveillance and intelligence system, ultimate oxymoron, ha, ha, ha. Well, that, of course, is no longer the case because U.S. for several weeks was saying the war is coming, the war is coming. So the triumph of intelligence, military intelligence, but the failure of deterrence because we didn't stop Putin. We didn't stop Putin. So war still happened. And when that war happened, it's changing entirely the nature of priorities in a vast number of significant economies, not only in Germany, as we saw three days later in the speeches at Bundestag, in Zeitenwende and $100 billion, assume, assumingly going into the military, but in Finland, Sweden, the Baltic countries, Poland, Romania, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Australia, and many others. Military budgets are being expanded. What does it mean the military budget is spending? Who's, who's paying for this? Well, government's paying this. These are public deficits. This is more of public debt. Money that would go or would have gone previously into, say, social services, supporting personal consumption for less fortunate 
and they actually are the big lever on the consumption, as we see every day, every year in Black Friday. Um, that is moving over to military spending. So in economic terms, from your C consumption, private consumption, to G government spending. And that makes economies much more volatile, much more less resilient to other shocks that might come. And so that matters, and that matters for a number of, of markets. One of these symptomatic markets is, of course, the energy market. Who would have guessed, who would have guessed a year ago, after 20 years of Schröderama in, in, in Germany, that within seven months, Germany would build an LNG terminal, a floating energy LNG terminal, which was just opened by Scholz and Habeck. That's incredible, right? That actually happened. You can very quickly redirect flows when some flows are disrupted. It's possible. But who can do it? Large countries with big resources. Yes. This LNG that's going to float now into, um, I think it's fun in Hafen in, in Germany, is often snatched away from other markets. Floating LNG that was destined maybe for Indonesia or maybe for Thailand, but Germany pays the top dollar or top euro. Top okay. Yes. So that, that is an economic miracle, creating infrastructure so quickly to replace Russian gas. And there is no Russian gas flowing into Germany anymore. And it shows one thing about human beings. You know, when we pinched, we'll actually react to this. So one of the risk scenarios, you know, when things go bad and it's going to be the end of the world, human beings always react. Look at the Ukrainian army. Who would have thought, right? This is probably now the strongest army in, in Europe. That's a huge surprise. German energy, completely independent of Russian oil. Who would have thought in seven months it's possible? So never underestimate human ingenuity, especially in this environment. But what does this environment actually mean? It means that the global market, the global trade system, up until February 24th, with some signals over the previous two or three years, but could be metaphorically described as an ocean, right? It's an ocean. It's, it's like once the Portuguese figured out in late 15th, early 16th century, what the main oceanic currents are and what the winds are, they figured out with Vasco da Gama to go around Africa and how to cross over the monsoon season, um, the Indian ocean and how to get back safely and get back from Southern Africa to Europe without being thrown into the Northern Atlantic by the seasonal winds. They figured it out. Once you know it, and we've known it for a couple of hundred years, the trade was basically about, you know, you're in the middle of the ocean and you're only, you're only hemmed in by land somewhere far away behind the horizon. Everything is open. You can sell here, buy here. It depends how competitive you are. And some are more competitive than others because some build better ships than others. Some have better connectivity than others or are more imaginative or more powerful. But now that system is less as an ocean. And it reminds me increasingly of a system of rivers. So yes, you can still float. You can still buy things and buy and sell things here and there. You can still float up and down, but it's actually in one way you go upstream and the other way you go downstream. That realization, you know, was helpful for creation of ancient Nile, ancient Egypt, right? Egypt. Egypt was such a connected, internally connected trade system over a very long area because it was easy to float 
north with the currents and south with the winds. There's no other river like this going in this direction. And so let's assume we're now connected with the, by these rivers, but that means significant spend to reconnect different canals. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, with these costs of capital, because of higher interest rates, it's expensive. What makes it more expensive is that rather than building canals, we're actually destroying some of these canals. And the American chip war is a great example of that. Just yesterday, several Chinese companies were added to the um, entity list. Entity list, meaning you are not allowed to do any business with those semiconductor producers or producers or manufacturers of semiconducting equipment in China. If you're an American company, oh, by the way, if you're any company in the Netherlands, Japan, South Korea, and elsewhere doing business with China, but using U.S. dollars. That, uh, that, as I said, this is a second nuclear bomb, something that started on October 7th and no reaction from China. Maybe it's a strategic move by China. I don't know. They seem more to me like they are reacting chaotically. So a big delegation going to Seoul in Korea, trying to peel Korea away from the Western world. Look, we offer to you this really exciting, juicy market. Please come over. Lai, Lai, Ching Lai. Um, whether Koreans actually hear the siren sounds or not, that's more reactive to an amazing 180 degrees um, switchover that Xi Jinping's um, regime has been trying to engineer over the last couple of days. I mean, literally the last couple of days. Suddenly private companies are kosher. Suddenly a foreign educational system is kosher. Please come back. We kicked you out two years ago, but you know, it's, it's perfectly okay. And uh, provincial um, authorities, please take your businessmen on a plane to Germany, Japan, and South Korea and bring some investment because the country is starved of capital. That's so much for, and that's another myth that was broken this year in addition to invincibility of Russian army, so much for those long-term scheming Chinese, you know, because they have this, you know, this is, this is really Orientalist thinking. Oh, they have this vision of the world. No, no, no. It's a major jerky jerky little uh, puzzle, you know, a little hooky-pooky they're playing every now and again. Oh my God, people are unhappy with coverage. So what shall we do now? Limits open. Oh my God, people are dying. Let's not talk about it. So that's the reactivity of the system. Uh, but Chipur and IRA, so the Inflation Reduction Act, um, have recreated the system, splitting really the world into two. If a country has a free trade agreement with the U.S., bingo, nice. But if it doesn't, and EU doesn't, or Brazil doesn't, then what happens? Well, one thing that happens is Macron travels to Washington and say, please, let's, let's open up because we cannot sell you our batteries for your electric cars. Now, um, Germany and France seem to link together. I think yesterday, uh, Bruno Le Maire, who's the Minister of um, uh, Finance in France and Robert Habeck, Vice Chancellor of Germany, wrote a joint statement asking U.S. to open the door to, um, to the uh, European electrification sector. I wouldn't know exactly why not. Ultimately, Western Europe are our allies, and you can make still an argument about some uh, governments in, in South America that could be used as an incentive. Um, but right now, for whatever reason, in addition to Canada, Australia, South Korea, there are very few countries that can benefit from that massive fiscal spending that U.S. splurges on, on, on decarbonization now through, through IRA. So new reality, higher transportation costs, 
higher insurance costs because of course security costs money, um, trade financing uh, costs more. All of this is there to stay with us, especially if the Fed doesn't slow down with those hikes of the, uh, of the uh, Fed funds rates. And then the last point that I want to make and that links up to last week's um, uh, episode with a uh, Christmas tree behind me, it's about the utter fiasco of Xi Jinping's trip to Saudi Arabia. We didn't know that yet last week, how bad it went. It's really amusing. It's amusing because you might remember that China had signed, I think, $450 billion deal with Iran uh, early this year or late, late, late last year. So that was this big thing, you know, hey, India has to stick to American sanctions against Iran. They cannot build all this infrastructure. We're coming. We're, we're, we're your friends. We're going we're gonna to disregard all the U.S. sanctions. Let's do business. That has remained on paper. That has remained on paper. Tehran is totally desperate. And of course, they're selling something to Russia right now. We know what it is. Uh, but uh, Xi Jinping's trip to Saudi Arabia proved to be a pivot. The pivot away from Iran. MBS, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, forced Xi Jinping to sign two anti-Iranian statements regarding nuclear proliferation, regarding peace in the region and so on. That is unheard of. Why did Xi Jinping did this? Why did he do it? The reason being that he went on this trip to create a system that sanctions proof. Sanctions proof against U.S. sanctions. You might recall that early during the Ukrainian war, there was a rumor in the market that the Chinese are actually selling some nuts and bolts to Russia to help Russia with the military effort. We don't know the validity of these claims, but the Hong Kong market didn't have to wait, and it plunged 8% to $300 lost overnight. Now, that was a signal for the Chinese. They, they just can't openly flaunt U.S. sanctions. Their economy still, despite all the decoupling, much more integrated with the world than the Russian economy outside of its energy sector. And so uh, what Xi Jinping did at the time, he called a lot of banks saying, what can we do to protect our economy in case of conflict, say conflict with Taiwan or conflict with India, which is flaring up again in Arunachal Pradesh, by the way. That, what can we do? And the banks, and there were mostly Chinese banks, state-owned banks and so on, but also HSBC, said, we didn't know, there's nothing to do. There's nothing you can do. But in the mind of a regime that relies on the uh, control of three economic factors, so capital, labor, and land, capital is represented by physical capital, not by financial capital. And in, the ter in terms of the capital stock, this is by far economy number one in the world. And they want to leverage this. And they go to Saudi Arabia and say, look, giving our weight in the global trade system, giving the fact that we are the largest trade partner, we will buy oil from you as your largest uh, customer, oil customer. But uh, please take renminbi from us. Take our currency from us, not the dollar. Let's just get together against those Americans. No, we don't like them either. You know, you've been kind of cozying up with us and, and Putin and Putin helped you with that, with the oil price war. So let's, let's just do some stuff together. And the Saudis just sat back and said, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and so on. 
Say, are you kidding me? Xi Jinping, are you kidding me? I have a trade surplus with you, China. What the hell am I going to do with this renminbi? When I earn dollars, I exchange them to euro so that I can buy property in France. Am I going to buy property in Russia? Your real estate market is broken. Or I buy, I exchange those dollars into uh, pounds so I can buy another golden, uh, golden Rolls Royce. Like we saw there, right? Now I'm not going to buy Xiaomi or even Volkswagen Santana from Shanghai, right? And I buy those dollars and then the remainder of that capital, I can plunge into the U.S. treasury market. The U.S. treasury market is a $30 trillion debt market that I can, that's sufficiently liquid even for this. What can I do with this in China? I already, I'm already building a Fujian petrochemical center so I can maybe double that, but that's a fraction. I have a trade surplus with you. I don't need your yuan. I don't need your renminbi. That was a total fiasco, total fiasco, because that means that until we have a um, crypto solution, so say central banking, digital currency, and we know that, you know, Swedes are working on it, the Chinese are working on it, the Fed is working on it. Until that day, the global financial system in those rivers, limited rivers and canals, what makes them move is still the U.S. dollar and not the Chinese renminbi because only their current account is open and their capital account remains closed. And for the Communist Party to stay in power, it has to remain closed. They have to control the price of capital in the country. Otherwise, they realize they lose power. That's just as simple as that. Now, it doesn't mean that the dollar will strengthen next year. So don't take me on that. What happened yesterday morning in, or Monday morning, was it, in Japan, with Japan, expanding their band of the, what's called, yield curve control, strengthened the yen. The yen has been on a downside for, for, for many months. Um, that could, of course, take some shine off the dollar because, of course, after the Fed, the world's largest investor in liquid funds are Japanese pension funds. And that means a lot of this capital is being called back home. But called back home from everywhere, including frontier markets and emerging markets. So we can brace for more volatility more calling for help, please China help. China doesn't have money to help now. So this is bad news for all of those who, you know, at least in Argentina, they have some, something to celebrate about for a couple of days, but most of those countries, they really have nothing to be happy about these days. And um, the return of leftist governments, I mean, looking at uh, President Nila's uh, cabinet and his appointments and central bank, that's, that's, that's a pretty, you know, return to the future, honestly. Yeah. Uh, sadly though, for, for many countries that still believe that this multipolar world is a battered bet for them than just U.S. dominance. But U.S. dominance gave us a lot of peace and a lot of prosperity for those who knew how to capture that opportunity. Multipolar world is going to be more of what we have seen so far with a lot of suffering for at least in Eastern Europe, but also for others. Do you, uh, before we wrap it up for the day, do you want to address Agnes, Agnieszka's uh, comments there. You might have to scroll up to see them. Yeah, let me just have a look. Saudi Arabia, uh, they just bought shares in Polish all business and through Polish power security has been seriously undermined. Yeah, every time you have a foreign investor uh, entering strategic asset, there should be a special body that oversees the uh, non-commercial uh, spillovers from such a deal. I you know, I 
I'm not sure to what extent Poland has such a, such a body. For example, in Australia, it's called FERB. Canada is one, has one now as well. And it's very, uh, very strongly uh, watching even indirect presence of state-owned enterprises. And Saudi Aramco is a state-owned enterprise today. So especially when there are interests of other governments rather than private shareholders, that should be uh, quite... There, there should be a lot of focus on that. And where exactly are those interests? You know, here, I don't know whether Poland has failed. In my view and the view of many others, uh, the German government failed a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. In, in, in Hamburg with that terminal because there is no reciprocity. It's not like Germany can go, the German government can go and buy a Chinese port. And I don't think, you know, Polish uh, interest can go and buy a piece of the Saudi Arabian government. So, so if there is no reciprocity, there should be a lot more uh, scrutiny. And some of this scrutiny comes uh, belatedly. There's an example of, I think, some nuclear technology in the UK, which is being watched over. And I think that some of these deals can be, uh, un, you know, can unravel over time as a new, new government comes, whether it happens in Poland or not, I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the reason exactly is for that transaction didn't follow that, but it's a, a it, Definitely requires scrutiny when these are public companies. Why do governments allow this to happen? Why did? Why was that? Why? Why could that happen in Germany, and why can this happen in Poland? So, I think here are two different cases slightly. Um, China is only now recognized in EU as a rival and competitor. Saudi Arabia isn't. There's some. Uh, value-related distaste for uh, the regimes in, in the Middle East, but not from the geopolitical uh, standpoint. So, so Saudi Arabia is not considered a rival that could somehow uh, leverage its influence over European infrastructure for whatever global schemes China is. So it's a big first big difference. They um, the, sometimes listening to. German politicians, and I know a lot more about German politics than I know about Polish, so sorry about that. But they, they, there was an element of foreign policy in, uh, in the office of the chancellor, which is almost transported magically, like in science fiction, from the era before February 24th. So there are two, there are two officials there who are the old SPD hands, who are the old pro-Russian SPD hands, and they craft big moves, geopolitical moves by, by Germany and, Ger and Ken Chancellor Scholz's superfluous trip to China prior to G20 was a good example of that. So actually, Ministry of Foreign Affairs has a very junior role here to deal with. And again, I'm not sure who in Germany should be um, screening those, independently screening those investments. Some of this is happening exposed. So of course, uh, Gazprom has been kicked out from some of the J joint ventures of the last couple of months and so on. But the focus is just on Russia as if China didn't matter, right? So in media, you have a lot of discussion about it. How can we just, you know, miss that, uh, that, 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 that particular game yet again, uh, having just cleaned up our, our deck on, on Russia? Uh, I think in Pol Polish case, if I were to be just very blunt, maybe there's corruption in this, you know, frankly. I mean, there's so much interest that this particular uh, team of politicians has entrenched itself for, for years with 
people who have no reason whatsoever to be in the positions that they are, that there could be some money, you know, from Saudi Arabia. I wouldn't be entirely surprised if 20 years from now, 15 years from now, some other uh, regime in Poland just digs out something really dirty. But I'm advancing here on a, on a limb because I don't know Polish politics at all. All right. Yeah, I think yeah, Anya just sent uh, a, uh, a link to, I think, a Polish newspaper. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And Russian investors behind. Very, very interesting. Well, if you have Hungarians involved, then it's, I have no compunction against saying that there is a deep corruption behind it because that's, yeah. that's out in the open. All right, let's wrap it up for today. We will see everybody next week.